0: Since its birth, Pakistan's democratic experiment has been punctuated by military coups.
1: The army came in, they planted puppets. They chose politicians who they could control.
0: And now caught on the front line of America's so-called war on terror, Pakistan stands accused of playing a double game, supporting the Taliban abroad, whilst fighting them at home.
2: You can't keep snakes in your backyard and expect them only to bite your neighbors.
0: When a massacre at school in Peshawar left the country reeling, the army reasserted itself. So, will the government rein in the generals? Can the voters trust their elected leaders? Or is Pakistan on the brink of becoming a failed state? My guest tonight was the youngest and first female foreign minister of Pakistan when she was appointed in 2011. She said her country has nothing to apologize for.
3: We feel that we are the ones who have uh, reacted the most, we are the ones who have sacrificed the most, we are the ones who are fighting it on the ground on a daily basis.
0: I'm Mary Hassan and I've come here to the Oxford Union to go head to head with the former Pakistani foreign minister, Hina Rabbani Kar. I'll ask her whose side Pakistan is really on in the fight against terror, and whether democracy in her country is in danger. Tonight, I'll also be joined by Omar Warayich, an award-winning British journalist and former Pakistan correspondent for Time magazine. Humaira Iqtidar, Pakistani academic, senior lecturer in South Asian politics at King's College London, and author of Secularizing Islamists. And Musharraf Zaidi, former advisor to the Pakistani foreign ministry, as well as to the EU and the UN. Ladies and gentlemen, please put your hands together for Hina Rabbani-Kar. <laughs> Hina rabbani Khar was first elected to the Pakistan Parliament at 25. She was Minister of State for Finance and Economic Affairs for seven years under two successive governments and was Foreign Minister between 2011 and 2013. Uh, Hina Rabbani-Kar, Pakistan, which was founded as a democracy 68 mm-hmm. years ago, Has been under military rule military dictatorship for 33 of those 68 years today the country is run by a democratic government Uh, but isn't it true that the military are still running the shots behind the scenes
3: Uh, maybe it is absolutely true that in the case of pakistan unlike any other democratic dispensation the military has much larger role than typically the constitution of pakistan would permit and interestingly i don't know if you know this or not but a civilian made constitution without any amendments has only been applicable in Pakistan for four years since 2010 and now and before that between two years from 56 to 58.
0: What did you do as foreign minister to push back against the military? Did you ever get generals ringing you up telling you what line to take on this or that policy before you went on a foreign trip?
3: No. I think I was fiercely independent for anyone to call me to tell me which line to take. Uh, But clearly on issues which I thought they were relevant (coughs) stakeholders, I would always consult. I would love to engage. I would negotiate. On issues where I felt they were not relevant stakeholders, for instance, trade with India, I don't think military was relevant. It's not none of their business. Um, when
0: Osama bin Laden was killed in Pakistan in 2011, you were the de facto foreign minister, uh, but the US administration didn't call you first didn't call President Zardari mm-hmm. first. The first call they made was to the head of the Pakistani army, General Kayani, at the time. The U.S. government knows who's running the show in Pakistan, and they make their phone calls accordingly.
3: The U.S. government has had a long history of immense fascination with the military of Pakistan. The U.S. government... Because they're running the show. Well, they, because they prop them up, because the When he came in, Pakistan got the best possible military and civilian assistance ever possible. When Musharraf came in, that was the largest military and civilian assistance that ever came to Pakistan. So the U.S. government clearly has a fascination and a preference to deal with military regimes. Well,
0: when you were foreign minister, if you look at the human rights record during the Zadari time in office, it's clear the army wasn't under government control. They were allowed to... Operate pretty much with impunity. For example, Human Rights Watch said in 2012 that Pakistan's government has failed to act against abuses by the security and intelligence agencies, which continued to allow extremist groups to attack religious minorities. The authorities did little to address attacks against journalists and committed mm-hmm. serious abuses mm-hmm. in counterterrorism mm-hmm. operations. When you were sent reports like this from Human Rights Watch, from Amnesty International and others, did you just throw them in the bin or did you try and take them seriously and did you mm-hmm. investigate those abuses? I will tell the you army?
3: exactly what we did. In 2010, we cr- created a judicial commission with three superior court judges to investigate this matter. In 2011, we re-established a second commission to investigate this matter, which resulted in the fact that today, from 2,800 missing persons which were reported to the second commission, we have 1,500 cases which have already been resolved. This was done by civilian government. I will tell you another thing. What was also so done... How no, many generals, no, how many commanding officers were prosecuted? You see, you're very interested in finding out what was yes, the so dynamics. How many were prosecuted? so let me Let me just tell you. Uh, how many were prosecuted after Abu Ghraib and after Guantanamo Bay? It's very difficult in most societies to be able to prosecute people who are supposed to be protecting the country. So the, the, the lines are very thin. There's a lot of gray okay. area over so here. So
0: explain to our audience who are watching at home around the world here in the Oxford Union Can we still call it a democracy?
3: We absolutely can call it a democracy because it is a democracy which is finding its roots and it's a democracy which is finding its ground.
0: ground. Okay, well, let's go to our panel of experts who are listening here in the Oxford Union. Uh, Omar Wariach, you served as Time Magazine's Pakistan correspondent for six years. Uh, In your view, uh, how democratic would you call Pakistan today and and how influential today do you think the military still is?
4: It's a fledgling democracy. uh, So there are genuine efforts towards that. However, the military remains preeminent. Uh, there's a pattern that happens, which is a civilian government will be elected. They will try something else, like to pursue an independent foreign policy in their first year. They get hit by a political crisis. Then what happens is that uh, to guarantee their survival, they enter a modus vivendi with the army. And they say, we will cede the prerogatives that you wish so to control. How do you break
0: that cycle? Can you break that cycle? Well,
4: you need two things to happen. Uh, one is there needs to be an absence of war. When there is war going on, the army will claim a preeminent role. The other is to have competent civilian government that produces economic growth. Um, in Pakistan's history, you've had neither. Not even Hitler's government? Certainly not. Okay, we'll come back <laughs> to Hina in a
0: moment. <laughs> uh, Musharraf Zaini, you actually uh, were an advisor to the Pakistani foreign ministry. Uh, you were in government, I think, at the same time as Hina. Do you feel the military were pushing you around at the time, or did you feel that you had control over
1: them? Uh, I'm, I'm a lot more sort of positive about uh, about the experience. I think that there was some really, really big issues on which, under the leadership of Foreign, foreign Minister Kar, uh, we were able to redefine the way that foreign policy is structured in Pakistan. There's a long history to to the bitterness between Afghanistan and Pakistan. But the redefinition and the repositioning of of how Islamabad and Pindi relate to Afghanistan, that happened on on Abani Abanikar's watch. And it happened not, not because the military was ready to jump in. The military, frankly, needed to be convinced
0: uh, Dr. Humera Ikhtedar, you're a political scientist at King's College London, author of a book on Islamist parties in Pakistan. Do you think the government Hina was part of did enough to rein in the military and subsequent governments to hold them to account? She's talking about the constraints uh, she was up against. What's your view? I think
2: it's been uh, it's been quite a mixed record, but certainly for the Zardari regime, which Hina was part of, uh, the problem was that there was absolutely no clarity of policy. The war on terror that, the, the, that General Musharraf's regime supported was actually something that the Zardari regime had absolutely no alternative to. So, you know, it continued with similar policies, didn't question the war on terror, the fundamentals of the war on terror, the, uh, the reasoning, the strategies, the success of those strategies. And that
0: emboldened the military. In and opinion.
2: that the war on terror has ultimately been most helpful for the military in Pakistan.
0: Hina, you lacked clarity and you lacked competence.
3: Mm-hmm. Well, uh, uh, maybe both. Uh, I would love to be much more competent and have much more clarity, but I would be, I would be very unhappy with myself if I'm told that we lacked cri- clarity on the foreign policy front because I like to believe that we did humongous work on the foreign, on redirecting the foreign policy. We called it the regional pivot of Pakistan because we believed we didn't need to have a great relationship with London or with Washington DC, but a great relationship with Kabul and Delhi. After 35 years, no military government or civilian government in Pakistan had the guts to normalize trade with India. And we were told, as a policy, that we will not solve the trade problem until we solve Kashmir. We changed that. Do not underestimate the importance of that. Our effigies were burned, for heaven's sake. The
0: bar is not that high on effigy burning in Pakistan, to be fair. (laughs)
4: That might
0: be be correct. Just to deal with, Homera mentioned the so-called war on terror. Following last year's pretty horrific attack on the school in Peshawar in which the Pakistani Taliban, the TTP, killed 132 children, the Prime Minister, Nawaz Sharif, said that Pakistan would no longer differentiate between good Taliban, i.e. those who fight for Pakistan's interests abroad, and bad Taliban, those attacking Pakistan at home. Um, Isn't that basically an admission? That that's what had been happening in the past, including during your time in office, that you guys backed the well, bad Taliban as well as the so-called good Taliban.
3: I think Prime Minister Nawazji was slumbering away for the last five years before he came into power because clearly that is the distinctive feature of the policy that we were trying to run. And it is something which was recognized within the military quarters also. And I have to give the military credit for being able to change that policy because it was way deep in their veins. It was considered to be anyone who believed otherwise was a traitor to Pakistan. And we were able to change it. And please say what you may about President Zadari, but do give him credit for the regional pivot and for the fact that the PPP came with a complete regional focus. Was Hillary Clinton, the US Secretary of State, your counterpart at the time, was she slumbering as
0: well in 2011 when she told you to your Mm, face that she had evidence that there had been, quote, communication between the Haqqani Network, that brutal uh, uh, fighting group in Afghanistan, and elements within the Pakistan government prior to the Mm -hmm. attack by the Haqqani Network Mm -hmm. on the US Embassy and NATO headquarters Mm -hmm. in Kabul in September of 2011? How many times as foreign minister did you have to listen to allies of yours basically accuse you to your face that you're a state sponsor of terrorism?
3: Well, much too many times. I had to listen to that and more. Did than you tell
0: them they were all slumbering?
3: No, I did not tell them they were all slumbering. There were certain things which were which which had True. which which had uh, waves of truth in them. Waves uh, of truth. Yeah, which, which were partially mean? which were partially uh, relics of the past, I believe, which were superimposing on what the present was. Okay, I will tell you one thing. Pakistan did not have the ability, Mehdi, to be able to take on every terror network within the region all at the same time.
0: No, I think no one's asking you to get to fight all of them, but you didn't have to sponsor and fund them as well.
3: And and as far as sponsoring and funding them was concerned, clearly that I would like to believe that under our watch, that was not the policy direction at all.
0: So when the chairman of the Joint US Chiefs of Staff, Admiral Mike Mullen, told the Senate in September 2011 that extremist organizations serving as proxies of the government of Pakistan are attacking Afghan troops and civilians and US soldiers, the Haqqani network is a veritable Mm -hmm. arm of the ISI, Mm -hmm. was he slumbering too? No,
3: he was misguided. Okay? Because I believe, and I think history will prove us to be correct, that Pakistan was scapegoated fantastically for all the ills and the wrongs of the war in Afghanistan. Um, on drone strikes, yeah.
0: what is your view of U.S. drone strikes on Pakistani soil against Pakistani militants and Pakistani civilians? Are you a supporter? We said
3: that drone, drone strikes are counterproductive. What does counterproductive mean? It means that they are actually fueling extremism and assisting people to attract more people towards extremism. We said that they were against Pakistan's territorial We's integrity. We The Pakistani government? The Pakistani government.
0: So why, do, thanks to a US State Department cable, do we hear the Pakistani Prime Minister, Yusuf Razagilani, mm-hmm. your then boss, saying in private, I don't care if they, the Americans, do drone strikes. As long as they get the right people, we'll protest in the National Assembly and then we'll ignore it. How cynical, how two-faced was your government protesting in public against drone strikes, but backing it in but private. But guess
3: what, Mehdi? I was the foreign minister. The prime minister never said this in the room, uh, when I was in the room. What does that never. say to
0: you about your status within the government? No,
3: I was, I was, I was pretty much in every important meeting. So Apart from the one where
0: he said, I like drone no, strikes. So let's I was, do them. I was
3: foreign minister from 2011, March 2011, till, you know, till the end of our term. But what I'm saying is that but I'm not fi- I'm, a I'm not, no, not going to. I'm, yeah, I probably. So was, will you condemn I'm your not, prime Minister I'm not willing British to race? believe that he would say a thing like this. I really am not. So because it was made up. No, possibly could be. Why not?
0: Okay, so when President Zadari said to journalists on the record in 2010 in Lahore, there are no differences between Pakistan and the U.S. over any issue, including drone attacks. Mm-hmm. How does that fit what you were saying a few minutes ago? I think what ago. he was
3: referring to was the fact that the U.S. also believes that drone strikes are not a permanent solution, and they do. Okay, let me give you a statistics. For for 47 people who were on the hit list, what they call the high value targets, between Yemen and Pakistan, the US, according to the most conservative reports, killed 100, 1,147 people. How is that, what does that say to you about propelling extremism I
0: agree with you I'm saying to you I think drone strikes are bad. Sure. the problem is your government in private didn't seem to think they were what, bad. what I'm
3: saying is that the president the
0: pre- when he talked to reporters the president told Michael Hayden CIA director president Zadari mm-hmm. collateral damage worries you Americans it does not worry me in reference to not in the room I was so not in the room so Zadari Gilani they take all these decisions, but they no. don't tell you what I'm saying minister. is that I
3: refuse to believe and you that you go out
0: into public to say drones are bad while they're in the back going what I'm, drone, saying, drone, is, drone. What I'm
3: saying is that it is
0: <laughs> I mean, <laughs> explain to me how it works. i have to explain you. Explain to me how it works. Explain. Okay. Explain the
3: situation. Okay. What I'm saying is that it is not uh, possible for me to believe that things change so much because of my presence in the room or not. So what I'm saying is that some of these things could have been misrepresented or misreported.
0: Uh, Humaira, misrepresented, misreported, what is your view on the relationship between the Pakistani government and drone strikes?
2: I think if we take away the question of misrepresentation, we're still left with the fact that in actual fact, drones intensified. Uh, during Musharraf's regime, uh, we have way fewer dr- drones than during, the, uh, during uh, the
3: Zardari regime. President Bush and President Obama had a very difficult, different perspective on drones. And President Zardari's time, President Obama happened to be the president.
2: That's right. And but at the President same time, Musharraf's
3: time, President Bush happened to be the president who believed in maybe troops on the ground, uh, putting his President
0: Zadora, your president couldn't say, no thanks, we don't want these drones. You know,
3: we have a a parliamentary resolution which was probably unprecedented in the history of Pakistan which clearly stipulated that no one in Pakistan, no one in Pakistan is authorized to give any acquiescence to drone strikes and unless the parliament ratifies it and yet it.
0: leaked documents from the CIA in 2013 show that the ISI was helping the CIA pick targets for drone strikes in Pakistan this is
3: this is this is pre the parliamentary pre resolution the parliamentary. and pre uh, Okay let's
0: government. go to uh, Musharraf sahib just Moving on from the, the wider issue of drone strikes that Homer touches on, there is this constant accusation that Pakistan is playing a double game. On the one hand, it's saying, we're with you in the war on terror, we're sacrificing our soldiers, we're fighting against the Taliban and other groups. On the other hand, they're supporting those groups, they're turning a blind eye to what those groups are doing. How do you respond to that charge?
1: A country is supposed to fulfill its own interests and pursue its own interests above and beyond any other country's interests. So the issue, this whole concept of a double game comes from the standard presupposed assumption that somehow Pakistan Pakistan's game should be to fulfill what people that live in Washington, D.C. want. But ba- Pakistan's no, game is not to you fulfill... you to be an
0: ally of the United oh. States and take $20 billion from the U.S.? Well,
1: uh, uh, first of all, it wasn't $20 billion. Second of all, uh, actually, Pakistan was forced. Because by, by, by the admission of the former president of Pakistan, the military dictator Musharraf, and by admission of U.S. authorities themselves, they threatened to bomb Pakistan back to the Stone Age. The blame for drone strikes has to be... It has to be on the party that's conducting the drone strikes. And not, also the party that's the helping them, of the, drone the strikes. indeed helping Pakistan them. is a victim of drone strikes, not not if, not, the, a perpetrator. not if Pakistan
0: is helping the U.S. with those drone strikes.
1: <laughs> Would you accept that? I don't think there's enough proof that, okay, that let's Pakistan bring has in helped.
0: Omar, you've heard what uh, Musharraf has said and Hina said. What's your response?
4: Well, on the drone strikes, I mean, Pakistan could easily deny the airspace. Uh, and recently, there was a TTP commander who was killed on the Afghan side with intelligence provided by the Pakistanis. So, I mean, that that answers that case. And when it came to militants, they targeted the ones that they, they fought the ones that they had to, they appeased the ones that they could, they ignored the ones that didn't touch them, and they did, and they discreetly supported the ones who fought across their borders. Uh, This was part of a strategy to try and maximize influence in the region. Did it work? Because some people talk about blowback. You have the TTP now blowing
0: stuff. No, but we have to be...
4: Oh, the the TTP certainly was blowback. It depends who, what situation you're looking at. And I think this is actually the reason why, yes, you did try a regional pivot, but Pakistan remains massively isolated, internationally and regionally.
3: You know, interestingly, one doesn't tire from hearing how much blood the world has given in terms of trying to reform Afghanistan. 3,500 or even less than that, is the total number of ISAF soldiers who have lost their lives in that time period. In Pakistan, 6,000 soldiers and policemen have lost their lives in the same period. I bet they were fighting people that they created themselves. I bet at the same time they were funneling them, they were giving them uh, arms and ammunition no, and money and at the same terrible. time they were fighting them. Hold on, hold on. You're conceding
0: You're conceding that the people who died fighting in the Pakistani armed forces were fighting people that they helped create. You're conceding that? No,
3: I'm not at all conceding that. I'm saying how remarkably sadistic do you think we are to be able to even give us an argument like this? It's a starkingly evident which you're refusing to see, Mehdi. Pakistan's job is to protect its own people before the United States of and America. And you're not that doing that great job of that, that, are you? Are no. you? That's but a I problem. think is that's that it where is we obvious, have failed.
2: No, what I'm saying uh, is... Because thinking, the obvious, tribal areas, I mean... The statistics are of the supposedly approximately 4,000 people who've died only 726 have been named of those, only about 169 are alleged militants. They are disproportionately affecting civilians. As foreign minister, you never, you never took this up. The only issue no, that you not, did take up was of America. Right.
3: I will. Of uh, Humair, American you were clearly not following of... me as foreign minister for you to say that. No, really. I'm not. I'm <laughs> going to take anything the, else the because ma- I believe I was a major in factor in ensuring that there was no double facing on Pakistan's drone policy because I take myself seriously and I take the trust and the responsibility of the people of Pakistan that is put in me, as an elected member, very seriously.
0: Let's stick with the subject of double-facing the accusations that are made against your government. You were the de facto foreign minister during the US raid on Osama bin Laden's compound in Abbottabad in May 2011, in which he was killed. When you got the news that bin Laden was killed, uh, were you surprised, shocked even, that he had been found in Pakistan, Uh, or or was your reaction more like, "Uh uh-oh, they found him in the place we kind of knew he was, but we didn't want anyone to know? Which one was it? What was your reaction on the morning?
3: Uh, it was completely, uh, I think, shocked would be underselling it also. I mean, we went still. We didn't know what happened. And we were we went still. We didn't know how to react also.
0: Your own former cabinet colleague, ex-Defense Minister Chaudhry Ahmad Mukhtar said in October that President Zadari and the head of the Pakistani army, then General Kayani, both knew that Bin Laden was in Pakistan. Yeah. Did you know, or were you not in the room?
3: No, uh, he was not in the room. He was not in the room.
0: The defense no, no, no. minister wasn't in the room. The
3: defense minister, the fact is, the defense minister was not in the room and I was in the room. That's a fact. And I can assure you, the defense minister doesn't know the first thing about what, the former defense minister doesn't know the first thing that about he's talking military. about. About the military. Why <laughs> was he appointed about defence this minister?
0: No, it's slightly about embarrassing when you say that the defence minister of your government didn't have a clue. Up to,
4: It's up to the government to appoint the defence minister. Yes. By appointing someone, and this is the defence minister who said he found out about the raid because his daughter called him from New yes. York.
3: Umar? That's how he okay. found Umar, out. let me... Let me, okay,
4: let let me, me so with, let's deal with Let's deal with the... To appoint this person as, and then argue that they were in control of policy fine, and, and they the didn't voice. give the army any room is just risible. Can, can I just respond okay, to that? Okay, please do briefly Umar, and then do... I
3: completely agree with you right. on this one. The defence minister in Pakistan is the most ineffective minister who knows nothing about the defence or the foreign policy of Pakistan. That is a fact. Is I'm not going to deny that. That is my next guest
0: on this show. Please, go get it. get it. I'm going to open with that intro. Just deal with the Bin Laden point. That's a fact. Just... Just deal with the bin Laden point. So you are saying nobody in the government had a clue about bin Laden being in Pakistan, even though he was in a military yes. town, yeah. in a purpose-built yeah. compound down the road from a military academy, okay. the military had no clue he was there, seriously. Okay. So
3: the people in the room, in this room I can tell you, President Zardari, Prime Minister Yusuf Raza Gilani, myself as the Minister of State for Foreign Affairs, Secretary of Foreign Affairs, military chief, ISI chief. Six people in the room, right? Either all of them had to be fantastic actors who must get a job in Hollywood or at least Bollywood because they all made a great pretence of being still and shocked, like I explained to you, and not knowing how to react. If we knew how to react, would we give a silly statement like we did? Because we didn't know how to react. We gave a silly statement out, which we had to almost retract the next day.
0: So when US Defense Secretary Leon Panetta told Congress at the time, in May 2011, that Pakistan was either involved or incompetent Mm -hmm. in terms of bin Laden's whereabouts, I'm guessing you're going to go with incompetent.
3: Guilty for being incompetent.
0: Okay. And when Cyril Almeida, the Pakistani journalist, said in a piece at the time, if we didn't know bin Laden was in Abbottabad, we are a failed state. If we did know, we are a rogue state.
3: If uh, the United States of America could not find where osama bin laden is does that make it a rogue state or a failed state i think we rushed too quickly to call pakistan and the likes of pakistan I, a failed state to be fair pakistan has suffered because of regional if bin laden
0: was living down the road from the pentagon i think we would judge the united states
3: no you may you might as well what the fact of the matter is that there was a lot of intelligence agencies which were around okay yep. So if they didn't know and we didn't know, we were all in the same page. We were all in the same... One last question before we have to
0: take a break. Perceptionally, do you accept that people see Pakistan in a pretty bad way when it comes to the subject of political violence, extremism, terrorism... I think many Pakistanis
3: accept that. Many Pakistanis see Pakistan at a pretty bad place. But that all happened after 1979. Pakistan was at a very good place. When we put in extremism into the thought process, into the minds and bodies of Pakistanis, trained them to be Mujahideen, and then said, okay, done with it, extremism thought, take out. Where was the exit strategy? What the hell, man? I mean, what the, (laughs)
0: really? Uh, We're going to take a break there. Uh, In part two, we're going to be talking to Hina Rabanikar about the intractable conflict in Kashmir. We're going to hear more from our panel of experts, and we're going to hear from our audience here in the Oxford Union. That's after the break. Welcome back to Head to Head on Al Jazeera. We've been talking about Pakistan with the country's former foreign minister, Hina Rabbani Khar, who's here with me in the Oxford Union. We've been talking about drone strikes, the role of the military, the raid on bin Laden. Uh, Let's talk about Kashmir. Uh, The former president of Pakistan, General Musharraf, once said that Kashmir runs in our blood and we will never budge an inch on it. Recently, General Raheel Sharif, the head of the Pakistani army, has called Kashmir Pakistan's jugular vein. Hasn't this obsession with Kashmir and this kind of hyperbolic rhetoric Done more harm than good to Pakistan over the past seven decades, especially in recent years.
3: Okay, um, Mehdi, I don't think you can underestimate or take away the importance of Kashmir or portray it as a figment of Pakistan's imagination on crazy Pakistanis going crazy over Kashmir. Okay? We have Resolution 47 of the Security Council of the UN to prove, on a request of the Indian government who went to the Security Council, the Security Council asked for a certain number of things to be done, which included. the holding of a free plebiscite which would determine, determine, yes, it was in 1948, to be precise, and then there was another resolution in 1950, and then there was another one, and this has been a constant theme, right? Would you
0: agree that the military's role in uh, Kashmir policy, uh, especially in terms of backing Mm -hmm. various insurgent groups, Mm. has been a very violent insurgency, Mm. killed tens of thousands of people Mm. since the late 1980s. Mm. Do you think that has been a, a way for the military to... Uh, control foreign and defence policy in Pakistan, subvert it even, have a bloated budget beyond what really it should have?
3: Pretty much uh, a lot of academic work, and academic work even by Indians, proves that the Kashmir insurgency in some ways was instigated by the government of India more than by Pakistan, that they made it happen.
0: Okay, but deal with my specific point about the Pakistan military since, over the last 25 years, The the Pakistan military
3: obviously will have a very different view on any issue which has to do with territory than a politician, right? because we would try and find a non military way to deal with the situation and that's why th- within the constitution the military has a certain role and the parliament has a certain role and the uh, executive has a certain. But role. even non-militarily,
0: there's certain provocative things you can do. Uh, when you went to India yourself in 2011 as foreign minister, you kicked off your visit not by meeting your Indian counterpart or meeting with the elected Indian government, but first by meeting with Kashmiri separatists. And groups. what's the harm in that? You don't think Pakistani foreign ministers meeting separatist groups before they meet their counterpart is provocative at all?
3: Absolutely not. You didn't. They are it? part of. You the were shocked they when they people were upset when they you They are part of the dialogue okay. process. Why is
0: Hafiz Muhammad Saeed, founder of lashkar e a banned group, mm-hmm. banned in Pakistan and internationally? leader of the now rebranded Jamaat al-Dawah. He has a $10 million bounty on his head. He's on the UN and the US mm-hmm. terrorist watch list mm-hmm. and yet lives a pretty normal, free, middle-class mm-hmm. life in the city of Lahore. He holds public
3: meetings. He goes
0: on TV. How does that work?
3: Uh, well, as far as LET is concerned, believe me, we had zero love loss for them. And to say, I don't think... With respect, what I
0: believe is irrelevant. This man is wandering around a free man, saying some outrageous things, doing press conference. He's got police protection. Why?
3: I think he's been tried. I don't think the. Co- he's a the free man had, right now in Lahore. Uh, clearly, the courts let him go. Why? We, we ju- 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 the judiciary in Pakistan is free, and our system is very similar to that of India. So please, when you you have if you plenty of
0: anti-terror laws that allow you to round up hundreds of people mm-hmm. all the time. Amnesty says there are several hundred people mm-hmm. uh, detained without mm-hmm. charge in Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Uh, many people would Maybe. say you detain lots of people you don't like. I'm just but this guy you don't detain, and they'll draw their own conclusions listen, from that.
3: I'm just going to say that Hafiz Saeed is not somebody I'm willing to protect in any way, on this show or elsewhere. But, so but I'm, when I'm, you were in I'm, government, really
0: you did not lock him I, up.
3: I, I did absolutely try my absolute level best to make sure okay. that he was not somebody that the state of Pakistan associated with any which way. You and were I think it's you weren't the foreign the minister in, in
0: 2008 when the Mumbai hat- attacks happened. I was not. Uh, Pakistan has been accused mm. of sponsoring those attacks. You were in, uh, you were foreign minister in 2011 when American citizen David Headley pleaded guilty to helping uh, militant group Lushka taiba in carrying out those attacks which mm. killed 160 mm. people. He testified that Lushka, quote, operated under the umbrella of the ISI and coordinated with each other. The ISI provided assistance to Lushka, financial, military, moral. When you heard him say that, did you kickstart an investigation into the ISI to see if those claims were true?
3: I think we were briefed as to the credibility of those claims, and he was considered to be a double-triple type of an agent sort of a person. Isn't there more of a reason to investigate his claims? Who had, who had very little credibility. You uh, said you detail. got briefed. That's not an investigation. Yeah, the, the briefing, is what? They told you the briefing is what we asked for. Yeah
0: and they just said, we didn't do it, and you said, that's fine. As I fine. said,
3: we, I think we directed a change of policy, which is showing its results. But you not account are not accepting attacks. that argument. I'm asking,
0: did you hold anyone I'm to account over I'm the Mumbai attacks? I'm saying that
3: we tried to push as much as is possible. I still believe today, I believed at that time, that it was in Pakistan's best interest to get a resolution to the Mumbai trial. It was in our best interest. It took a uh, long time. But I can remind you of the fact that the Samjhota Express trials are still ongoing in India. Them and us have a very similar judicial process. Okay. So unfortunately, we cannot kickstart or push judicial processes when judiciaries are independent.
0: Uh, my point was that when you want to bend laws to arrest and detain people, you do it all no, the time. No, we go point. to the parliament. Please un- don't
3: say that, Mehdi. I would hold you accountable for that. We go to the parliament. Hold yes. me accountable,
0: but not the ISI. Yes, because... Um, <laughs> the
3: no, uh, I, I don't want to laugh no, this matter away. Well, let, le- le- let me, let me okay, explain. Please let do, me explain please The difference between Pakistan of the 1970s or, six or 80s when military regimes was there was that the military did not need to get laws passed through Parliament to get military... But now they on. have those powers. Now- they have, have those to go to parliament that is accepting no, the under the protection
0: of pakistan act and under the action in aid of civil power regulation the military has the power to round up people they suspect in counter terror operations and they have
3: to go to parliament to get ratification and they didn't from.
0: round up half as mohammed said is my point they didn't round up lots that of other is, people and that is something that so needs that's the to only be. point i was making mm. about uh, legal processes mm. one last question before i go to our panel uh, president zadari said uh, in 2011 that 35000 pakistanis have been killed in militant attacks many of them a lot of people would say uh, by fighters coming home from kashmir in blowback people who were armed trained radicalized in Kashmir, they came home, brought that expertise, that ideology, that violence with them. Is that a point you would share?
3: No, I would share it on the other border. And I think you are selectively choosing to use it on the eastern border, whereas the reality was that it was on the western border. It was the arms and ammunition and the money which had come from all over the world, which had gone to train people to go and so fight... only from
0: Afghanistan blowback, none Absolutely. from Kashmir? Okay, let's from put that... From Kashmir, let's I have already that. said
3: that it was our policy to ensure okay. that there was nobody No instigation on that end, because we were trying to pursue the path of negotiations.
0: Let's put that point uh, to our panel. Uh, Umar Warayach, you served as Time magazine's Pakistan correspondent for six years. Um, Blowback from Kashmir. Do you believe there's been blowback from Kashmir for Pakistan?
4: Oh, there's certainly been groups and militants who have fought in Kashmir and then subsequently fought inside Pakistan. I mean, that's documented. There are people from JEM, from HUJI, from from these other groups. Uh, You can find them. They've been on... Pakistan's kill list, they've been on Pakistan's most wanted list. So uh, that, yeah, at that point... And in terms of the
0: Hina's point about genuinely wanting to resolve it bilaterally, through trade, where, how would you divvy
4: up responsibility? Well, it's, it's, it's an intractable problem because Pakistan wants to raise the Kashmir issue because it, it embarrasses India. Pakistan can assert some moral authority over India in that way. But the problem is that Pakistan's so isolated. It's the only country that is actually saying this. They can't get anyone else on board. By contrast, the Indians know that this is an inconvenience, a source of embarrassment, but they also know that they're economically strong enough to ignore Pakistan and to make sure that other people ignore Pakistan.
0: Musharraf, uh, Musharraf Zedi, you were an advisor to the Pakistani foreign ministry. Uh, Omar says that Pakistan has been trying to use Kashmir to embarrass India, and yet has managed to shrug it off. I'm guessing you disagree with that analysis.
1: The problem in Kashmir is, is India, not Pakistan it's uh, if, if even if we accept the indian claims over kashmir particularly if we accept the indian claims over kashmir then it's an entirely indian problem to solve Yes, Pakistan made some very, very poor choices in supporting various militant groups at a certain point in time, especially during the 90s. But other than that blemish, the record that Pakistan has on Kashmir is actually something that as a Pakistani, I'm proud of. I'm proud of the fact that I belong to a country that stands up for people's rights, particularly when it comes to Kashmir, because that's the one place where nobody else is willing to stand up. Not the British, not the Americans, not the Saudis, not the Iranians, not the Burmese or the okay, Afghans, but only the Pakistanis.
0: Let me put that point to Dr. Homera Iqtadar, political scientist at King's College London, author a book on Islamist parties in Pakistan. Um, do you believe that Pakistan's role uh, in Kashmir has been a wholly positive one on the support of oppressed peoples?
2: At the popular level, there is immense support for the Kashmir issue, and of course, it is an issue that, in which the Indian government has played a very reprehensible role as well. Uh, my concern has been, and particularly with regard to the Zardari regime, that with actually, without, since they did not question the war on terror narrative, since they let the military play out its uh, responses to the war on terror, since they actually led to a militarization of all policy in that that way, they've handed Kashmir on a platter to India. Because now every time we have a conversation about Kashmir, India says, oh, but your country is a terrorist country. you know, you need to actually fix terrorism before... I, before, before I let
0: him I respond to that, very briefly, do you believe the Pakistani military uh, has no interest in a solution in Kashmir? Because as long as it's going on, it gets resources, it gets status, it gets to control policy. Do you share that? I think that?
2: the Pakistani army is actually in a slightly complicated situation with that, because on the one hand, they've motivated generations of soldiers with the whole question of Kashmir and independence for Kashmir, <sighs> etc. And at the same time, we see that the people of Kashmir are not necessarily now looking to join with Pakistan anymore. Well, right? yeah, let, me, let
0: me put that yeah. specific point. The problem is Kashmiris aren't exactly massive fans of your yeah. country. Uh, a poll in 2010 found that only 50% of Pakistan administered Kashmir, mm-hmm. Pakistan administered mm-hmm. Kashmir, want to be part of Pakistan. Mm-hmm. Only 2% of the mm-hmm. people in indian administered Kashmir I would want be to very be happy. part of Pakistan. I
3: would be very happy if the Kashmiri people get the choice to choose between India, Pakistan or an independent state. So you, you, wanna, you would have an independence question. I would be very happy if they choose an independent state or to go with India. I and just did, feel that they Was that, that policy under your government? Just to clarify, was that policy? That is absolutely the policy. That I have is three questions.
0: India, Pakistan, independence. Exactly. Just before I go to audience. Just audience. Clarify for me, yeah. explain to me. Is the current position of the Pakistani government to have a referendum in Kashmir with three questions on the on the ballot paper?
3: What I'm saying is Pakistan is committed to the Kashmiri people getting the right to choose. Between that is, India, that is absolute, Pakistan, and that independence? Ab- that that, is, that what is the policy of the, the government. We are completely committed to the uh, United Nations Security Council resolution. Which doesn't have resolution. a third question.
0: That's what I'm wondering. It, it doesn't have a third India question. In, the resolution says India, Pakistan. India yeah. Pakistan. You've introduced I, a new I, option.
3: I'm, I'm, that's not part of the resolution, but what I'm saying is that as it far as the Indi- as far as the Kashmiri people is- are concerned, so your view is there should the- be three That questions. is absolutely my view. And that was that your view when you were in office? That was my view when I okay, was. Okay, let's, in let's office. go to
0: our audience who have been waiting waiting very patiently here in the Oxford Union. Um, let's go to the lady just here, third row in the front. Here,
3: Yes. Um, your party, PPP, champions democracy, but fails to in substance. Um, implemented even within your own party. One butto follows the next. You yourself are from a um, political family. How do you expect there to be meaningful change in the country if the people in charge of that change got there because of who they're related to rather than um, what they've done for the country? Mm. Um, I don't think you can singulate Pakistan in that uh, Hillary Clinton will be following President Bill Clinton. There are many, many examples all over the world. To be fair I to Hillary I
0: Clinton, I she served as a senator and secretary of state. What did Bilal Bhutto do before he was put in charge uh, I'm, of the party? I'm going to I believe he was a university student at the time.
3: Yes. Uh, in know, this in great in town? No, no. In Pakistan, you know, her, his mother is right there. So is that why you got the job? Therefore, <laughs> 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 no. I think, I think clearly uh, the fact of the matter is that in Pakistan and in all developing countries, it does matter where you were born. OK? I have been born to a privileged background. And I will not take that away from the fact that, oh yes, I built every step of the way here. I got there because I was the daughter of a father who was already a politician. That is the fact, that is the reality. How are we changing that? By giving opportunity to more people who are not maybe as privileged as I have been, right? And by institutionalizing those changes. For instance, in Parliament today, there are women who are nominated through political parties and many women from middle class background, even lower middle class background make it to parliament so they can institutionalize those changes. So Pakistan, you know, don't judge Pakistan for where it is today. Judge Pakistan for where okay, it is well, going.
0: Just on Bilal Bhutto, mm-hmm. when he was appointed as mm-hmm. to r- run the party, he was a university undergraduate. Mm-hmm. What was your reaction when you heard that news? Were you no. still? like you were when you had the Bin Laden no, news?
3: No, uh, no, I was not... Were you specific. shocked? No, not at all. I think it was very you expected. You great leader, I, I defer to this point I boy. thought it was the most expected <laughs> thing to do. I'm being honest with you, it was the most expected thing to do. The Pakistan People's Party runs on it? the, the Bhutto s- name, that's a fact.
0: OK, let's go back to the audience. Uh, let's go to the gentleman here in the front row. Hundreds of Ahmadi Muslims in Pakistan have been killed uh, simply on grounds of faith, whether it's in their mosques, their homes or places of business. How can Pakistan inculcate a culture of tolerance when your own constitution and laws explicitly target Ahmadi Muslims, making it a crime punishable by three years' imprisonment or by death under the blasphemy laws for an Amadi to call themselves a Muslim? Isn't it time Pakistan repealed these laws and ended its state-sponsored persecution of Ahmadis
3: Okay, I'm embarrassed to be a Pakistani when I remember the fact that the white in our flag represents the right of minorities and Qaeda Azam, Muhammad Ali Jannah, even before August 1947, said that you are allowed to go to your mosque, you're allowed to go to, it is not the business of state, he said, to question your religion. I'm embarrassed that we've done two minorities what we've done in Pakistan. I will accept it.
0: So just to be, just to be clear, in terms of policy levels, things like a Pakistani goes to get a passport and has to declare that Ahmadi is a non-Muslim, yeah. that's an outrage, is it not?
3: I think that is completely unrequired. That's my personal view. Okay, let's go
0: back to the audience. Thanks. Gentleman here in the second row with the glasses. Hi, um, I'm David from Index on Censorship. Uh, the Pakistani Supreme Court's recently called for reform of the blasphemy laws. Um, we welcome this first step given the way in which the law is used disproportionately against non Muslims, abused to fulfill personal vendettas, and in a way that encourages extrajudicial punishments, including killings. But, Isn't it about time that Pakistan altogether abolished a law that is both counterproductive and wholly inconsistent with the basic rights of free expression, freedom of religion, liberty of conscience?
3: Okay, can I correct your facts before I respond to that? Uh, It is not disproportionately um, bent towards minorities and I'll give you a simple fact. Apparently, in a period of two years, and this is when I was in government, so this is like two two, two years back, there were about 300 uh, cases under the blasphemy law, which were. Uh, which were put there. Out of that, there were nine or ten which were against minorities, and the rest of them were apparently against Muslims. And there's not a single person within Pakistan who has been punished under blasphemy law. Okay? So the blasphemy, I'm not going to try and justify blasphemy law. But your him.
4: colleagues were murdered. Sorry? Your colleagues were murdered. Yes. Salman, Tassir, and Shabazz, but you were both assassinated. They were quote unquote, punished and your too. government did nothing.
3: Yes. At that time, our government believed that that was not the time to propagate this issue further because we could not get any results. So what happened okay, to the memory now, of them? I'm just telling you, I feel that in this year, in 2015, the Supreme Court judgment on that particular issue, it basically okay. vindicates the stance that Let me d- took.
0: Why didn't you change the law?
3: You, uh, during Musharraf's uh, regime, during Musharraf's time, there was a real effort to try and change the law. There was huge resistance against it, okay? And they tanked. We tanked, right? That's, again, a reality. Uh, we need to get Pakistan out of this atmosphere of extremist thought and people fighting will each other, create the circumstances... Is the reason, And I think this will be a natural step okay, that Pakistan will about, take. I want to go um, back to the audience, but very quickly,
0: yeah. it, uh, a genuine question. Was it because you feared for your life? A lot of politicians saw what happened to Salman Taseer. said, I'm not going down that, that road. I think at that
3: time, it wasn't fearing for your life as much as... as, well, as, as High-profile
0: people were being killed.
3: As, no, no, I'm talking about the Musharraf I'm time. I'm talking
0: about Salman Taseer.
3: At that time, people were scared for their lives. People were being killed Including right, you. left and centre. Everybody was scared for their lives. OK, I'm going to human. go back to the audience.
0: We need to get some audience questions back in. Let's go to the gentleman here. I just had a question about Afghanistan. Does
3: Pakistan
2: uh, have any interest in seeing a stably democratic Afghanistan, and do Pakistan's leaders have any vested interest in the continuation of the global war on
3: terror? I think it's a wrong question to ask. I mean, Pakistan is probably the country which is the most affected because of instability, war, and strife in Afghanistan. Whatever happens in Afghanistan, within minutes, within seconds, permeates through the borders and enters into our country. So we have zero interest in strife in Afghanistan. Let's go back to the audience. Let's try and get some more questions and shorter answers. Lady here. In February 2015, General Musharraf um, admitted to
2: Guardian that during the Karzai regime, uh, Musharraf's government government was working against Afghanistan and um, ordered inter-service intelligence to train the Taliban and uh, undermine Afghan governments. The question is: Is that why this controversial policy of love and hatred toward Afghanistan?
3: I would not believe General Musharraf is dumb enough to say something like that on record, even if he was doing it. So I cannot respond. He did. Well, then he's. I have. uh, Why would I explain? He's dumb or dishonest?
4: You you were in his
3: government. No, I was n- clearly not anywhere close to the foreign policy or security p- policy. Come on, you know, every time there's
0: a difficult tank. question, you're either in the room or not in the room, <laughs> depending on how difficult the question yeah. is. Let's go. Yeah, yeah, lady there has been waiting. Let me go to the lady behind. Yes, you with the glasses.
3: Um, my is Paimon Asad. I met you in 2012 in Islamabad and I asked you three questions. Afterwards, ISI officers approached me and they asked me why I had asked you those questions. So I hope this time I won't get approached by anyone. Um, so my question is, you, you sit there and you say that uh, you don't justify civilian deaths. But recently, Akhtar Mansur, the leader of the Taliban, um, the Afghan Taliban, has been known to be uh, injured and is being treated in a hospital in Quetta, which is in Pakistan. Osama bin Laden was found in Pakistan. Uh, Jalaluddin Haqqani is in Pakistan. Um, Mullah Omar died in Pakistan so how can you justify civilian deaths? There are three million Afghans who are living in Pakistan. Pakistan has tried very hard to put a biometric system in place. Pakistan has tried very hard to fence the border. Pakistan puts three, uh, 196 or even if that number 391 border posts to check the movement of Pakistans and Afghanistanis and what does Afghanistan do? Put 109 border posts. So we have tried very hard to convince our Afghan friends that it is in our interest, both of our interests, to ensure that this border is manned properly. So you stop blaming us for whatever happens well, in your country. You say they have refused to do that. <laughs> and stop blaming us. Stop blaming us. Not taking this blame.
0: OK, Mr. gentleman here has been waiting for a while. Something that's affected me and my family at a very personal level uh, is the systematic and ongoing uh, genocide against Shia Muslims in Pakistan. Uh, in July 2013, there was an interview where you said that your government had a deep and abiding commitment to find those responsible and to prevent those going forward. So can I ask what you specifically have done when you were in government to prevent those attacks and why those have been so, so, those actions were so unsuccessful because we still see increasing attacks and genocide? Uh,
3: again, I'm not going to justify that. That is part of, in some ways, a correlated thing to the minorities because we have created this. This is the mainstream, which is Sunni, and Muslim and everybody else is a minority in some ways, okay? And we feel that uh, what I'm saying is past policies in previous times have created this atmosphere where people are free to kill. That, right? That's true, past policies to, have
0: done that, yes. but deal so with we the, are, he raised your government. Between, yes. between 2011 and 2013, I believe mm-hmm. more than 1,000 mm-hmm. Shias were killed mm-hmm. uh, in Pakistan. That was when you were foreign minister. Mm-hmm. What practical steps did you take to say, okay, we're going to protect this minority mm-hmm. that's being
3: killed? You know, we, were, we, we did try our best to give as much security, because that's what you can do. These are bad root, deep-rooted problems which cannot be f- done away with in days or months or even years. You know, I believe what is happening in Pakistan. What started happening in Pakistan, ten years back, Hold in terms of you have this
0: huge military fighting all sorts of places, but you can't protect your people at home.
1: The relentless killing of Shias that 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 has gone on for a long time in Pakistan has suffered a massive sort of blow repeatedly over the last six months. Uh, m- Anti-Shia militants and terrorists have been killed in police encounters in Pakistan more than once. So there's there's no question that there's blowback against those policies. But the point is that these these issues are going to take a long time to okay, resolve. You Certainly made the point.
0: Not- Let's go to the lady there who's waiting there. Yes, the purple top. You wait for a microphone.
1: So my question is related to the army's interference in the Pakistani governance. It's a very basic thing. When will Pakistan be free from the army's interference in governance? and become a credible nation for itself, for its neighbors, and for the
3: rest of the world. When Pakistan has had longer than eight years, as I said, under constitutional rule, Pakistan is on its way to do that. You need to give this country time. I am the first one to accept that Pakistan has suffered greatly because of these constant military takeovers. we, We haven't had a run of constitution which goes, Even into a decade, we are a very, very young nation. Democratically, we are tiny, we are puny, we are an infant. Give us time. Okay,
0: let's take the question here from this gentleman here. My name is Azgar Baloch and I'm from Balochistan. In a decade, over 14,000 Baloch people have become the victim of enforced disappearance with journalists, intellectuals, students, bodies being dumped on the
4: roadside and my question is either we have to believe that your government was complicit in the atrocities or
0: uh, you have just adopted a silence on okay. those atrocities, Yeah, In 2008,
3: when we come into power, President Zadari announces ceasefire that lasts for six months, so clearly we are complicit. In 2010, we give the first broad clemency for anyone who wants to come for dialogue. You know, I have no reason to doubt what you're saying, but 16,000 doesn't look like a correct number because the commission which was formed rec- took 1,800 uh, persons or, you know, close to that. And out of that, the unresolved cases which were taken to the commission is 187 okay, today. let's as go back stand. to
0: the last question. gentlemen here, yeah, the white shirt. Hi, uh, I'm a Kashmiri Pandit from India. How are you planning to bring peace in Kashmir uh, considering, again, that Kashmiri's... They just don't want to be with India or Pakistan.
3: We just want them to have the right to choose. Get Prime Minister Modi to agree to that. I will get Prime Minister Nawaz to agree to the same. On that perhaps optimistic note,
0: depending on which angle you look at it, we're going to have to leave it there. Hina Kara, thank you for joining me on Head to Head. Thanks to our panel and audience here in the Oxford Union. Head to Head will be back next week, and we'll be talking about India, which I'm sure Hina will be pleased to hear. We'll be talking about India on Head to Head next week, so do join the programme again then. Good night.